Sennheiser has been continuously setting trends in the audio industry. Wherever people care passionately about recording, transmitting, or playing sound, Sennheiser will be there. Artists, disc jockeys, scientists, sound technicians, or demanding music lovers, the Sennheiser name always stands for premium products, headphones, microphones, and all-around audio solutions. The ultimate in sound quality. Sennheiser. It's the Messiah Community Radio Talk Show. This is Michael James Law and your host. You're in for a treat. The book, You Found Me, How New Research on Unchurched Nuns, Millennials, and Irreligious are Surprisingly Open to the Christian Faith. Our special guest is Dr. Rich Richardson, or Rick Richardson, and welcome to the program. Thanks, Michael. It's great to be with you. Our sponsors with over 90 years experience in developing audio electronics. Bayer Dynamics stands for innovative audio products with the highest sound quality and pioneering technology. Two business divisions, consumer and installation, provide tailored solutions for professional and private users. All products are developed in Germany and primarily manufactured by hand. From headphones to microphones and conference and interpretation systems. For more information, please visit north-america.bayerdynamic.com. And by Vocal Booth to Go carries a complete line of products and accessories specifically designed for voiceover actors, audio professionals, podcasters, producers, and studio owners to help them get professional results for their clients. It's your go-to place for sound treatment, soundproofing, portable, and mobile vocal booths. Visit VocalBoothToGo.com for more information. And Oralex Acoustics has one mission to make you sound your best. Thousands of satisfied Oralex customers have experienced improved acoustics along with free expert advice, total sound control products from Oralex. Enjoy widespread use among prominent artists, producers, engineers, and corporations worldwide. Remember, it's not your gear, it's the room. Visit Oralex.com for more information. And great audio starts with great gear. And Zoom's 30-year reputation promises quality and affordability. Visit zoom-na.com today for recorders, audio interfaces, effects pedals, and more. We're Zoom, and we're for creators. So we're talking about nuns, not nuns, like N-U-N, right? Right. I've had that. I've had people who heard the name and wrote about, what are you talking about nuns for? And (laughs) nuns are people that on religious surveys, when asked for their religious preference, say nothing in particular or uh, no religious preference or atheist or agnostic, but they're not affiliated with any religious. And we don't mean anything by it because a lot of nuns listen to the program, right? Just kidding. I love nuns. (laughs) (laughs) The more nuns, the better. So um, let's talk about your book because... You know, uh, the state of the church, I mean, this is just one little picture. We could, you know, drive by a church and the, the doors are closed and it's locked. And sometimes the state of the church, it depends how you look at it. It could be optimistic. Others are really sure what's going on today. But it's, it's, uh, it's so two places, two things that I think are pretty interesting to note. One is kind of the state of the church in terms of its health or vitality or growth. 60% of the churches are about that I'm rounding off because people don't like the decimal points and all that kind of stuff when they listen. (laughs) But 60% of the church of Protestant churches are plateaued or declining. 30% are growing, but primarily through transfer. So in other words, growing at the expense of the churches that are shrinking. 
which kind of makes it a competitive environment for a lot of people. And what's more, uh, because a lot of churches are not growing by reaching new people, pastors in general are discouraged and often feel like they're failing in their mission. So that's 90% of the churches, uh, and only 10% of the churches in America, Protestant churches in America, are growing primarily through reaching new people. And so that's a very significant reality or picture um, of, the of the church today. But here, here's the interesting thing, Michael, about that is that the churches that are growing uh, have missional imagination. They really are compelled by the mission and the yes. heart and the love of Jesus. And, and then they also have a sense that people out there actually want to hear about Christian faith and are interested in congregations and are on a spiritual search. And what I found in our research with 90% of the churches in the country is their narrative is primarily negative about the receptivity of people in our culture, and therefore their witness is uh, often not very vibrant. Wow, that is uh, some sober news because it is interesting. Sometimes, you know, a church that was thriving in a community, a microcosm of what was happening and no longer in touch with the community and then the doors do close. So that kind of rings true to what you're saying as far as, you yeah. know. Yeah. One of the really interesting things, Michael, about that is, is that uh, churches that aren't connecting to their community and serving their communities uh, aren't reaching new people. And when they, when they get that fortress mentality or defend themselves, like too often Christians today are defending their way of life rather than spreading their way of life. Yes. And so, uh, so churches that are connecting to their communities are the churches that are reaching people. But here's the other interesting thing. If you're not committed to reaching new people with the gospel, with the good news about Jesus and his love for people, but you're just serving people because you want to be kind-hearted, those churches actually aren't reaching anybody. They're, they might do some good things in the community, but they don't have a heart to help people connect to Jesus and to renewed in faith and so forth. So it takes those two things, really serving your community and also wanting people to really know the love of God, know the love of Jesus. That makes sense. And free coffee always helps in the mega church. Oh, gosh. You are right. Churches that practice <laughs> hospitality, eating, and giving away food are doing better than churches that aren't. That's true. What, let me, you know, a lot of research went into this. Once again, the book You Found Me, and again, new research on how unchurched nuns, millennials, and irreligious are surprisingly open to Christian faith. What do pastors do when they get all this info? A lot of work went into it. We've worked with about 180 pastors based on this information. and They helped us get some of the information, but a lot of them then benefited from it. And one of the things that pastors uh, discover, we, we, we surveyed 2,000 unchurched people across the country from every region of the country and most urban, suburban, and rural places in the country. And so, so we got a lot of data from unchurched people and what they're open to. And here's one of the really interesting things about that. Unchurched people want to talk about spiritual things. They want to talk about Christian faith, but they don't want to feel judged and they don't want to feel like they're expected to be something they're not. And too many approaches to sharing Christian faith have focused on telling people right away that they're sinners and telling them right away that they need to change and convert to Christianity. And that approach to sharing our faith is exactly 
what many unchurched people in our country are afraid of and put off by. Yes. It's not the place to start. And Dr. Richardson, because you are the director of the Billy Graham Center you know, Institute and uh, its Church Evangelism uh, Initiative, I, I wanted to draw attention to uh, a YouTube video by uh, Dr. Billy Graham with uh, Woody Allen as an example. He was interviewing Woody Allen, did the best job. In fact, uh, I think a better job than any uh, uh, pastor or evangelist on television because he still brought the gospel to people, but yet he did it in a way where there was... Uh, you know, he weaved into the into a relationship, and he did it with uh, with heart and humor, and oh. uh, he, he didn't at all hit people over the head uh, until, I mean, he did it in a, always in a loving way. Yeah, I absolutely love that video interview as well. I'd recommend everybody watch it. And yes, such a great example because at one point, you know, Woody Allen asked, "So you, you know, you wouldn't really want a person like me to, you know, to become a minister or to reach out?" And Billy Graham said, "No, Woody, I really think you're exactly the kind of person that needs to have your life changed, and you are the person that could really reach a lot of people." And and that was it was Billy Graham's love for people and his belief that anybody could be transformed by the gospel. It was so contagious. Yes, and I, I love when he said, now, Woody, he said, when God looks at you, you know, he sees you as perfect. You know, he, you're beautiful. And, and you could see Woody Allen melting under the, uh, the auspice of the Holy Spirit saying, really? <laughs> you know, you no, that's, that's right. And, and, and so I'm glad you bring up that interview because that's a wonderful example of what we found that people need to do to crack the cultural code for people today, for nuns and millennials and, and other people in our culture. To crack the cultural code, we need to approach people and first of all, build trust where trust has been broken and build trust around common interests and common concerns and common struggles that we have. And then find whatever we can to affirm in the person and their spiritual search. Uh, what, what we discovered in our research is people will not let you influence them until they feel like you get them. Yes. And that's what happened with Woody Allen in that interview. He, he felt like Billy Graham cared for him. He did. And, him and, and understood him and then could call him to change. And what I noticed, too, is that he was happy to engage uh, Woody Allen. Yeah, I, I really think. And, and so but part of where we kind of see that in scripture as well, is that in Acts 17, Paul went into a community that was fairly resistant to the gospel, uh, to a culture that, you know, was into lots of other stuff and lots of other idolatry. And instead of Paul starting with, y'all are sinners and, you know, you need to turn. And uh, instead, Paul said, I, know, I notice you're a very religious people. He saw the good. And then he said, you have a, an altar to an unknown God. That's what I want to talk to you about. He found the connecting point instead of first focusing on the differences and the things that don't connect. He always mentioned, you know, God's arms are wide open, you know, ready for you. He loves you, you know, and just hearing that, I mean, and you, you turned to my wife and said, well, how come pastors don't talk about that, about the love of Jesus and that he's waiting for you and that he knows you, you know, and, and there's just so much hope in that. Yeah, there is. You know, we also, so we, we surveyed 2,000 unchurched people. We also surveyed 4,500 
churches. And uh, we talked to the senior pastors of 4,500 churches. And, and again, we found our top 10% churches were growing primarily through reaching new people. And what we found is those pastors got what we're talking about right now. They got what Paul was doing in Acts 17. They got what Billy Graham does when he approached people and saw the best and called them to receive and embrace the love of God. And uh, those pastors got that. They had a narrative that people were open and that people were receptive. And, And they had a narrative that the gospel still had power to reach everybody in our culture. Uh, often the problem for reaching people is not their receptivity. It's that the church gives up hope and love uh, for people and that they can be reached. And I've seen this in my life. I, I moved recently from Wheaton to the south side, the south loop of Chicago. I'm in a condo that I don't, there's not another evangelical Christian that I've met in that condo anywhere. Um, Half the couples on our condo floor are gay couples. Hmm. And I would have thought, well, boy, I'm going to run into resistance. I don't think people will understand. And, And Michael, it has been just stunning to see how open people are and how, how many gospel conversations I've had. And my next door neighbor, Barry, uh, he came to us. He's a part of a gay couple. He was part of a gay couple. He came to us and asked for relationship counseling after he got to know us. And I really, I was over my head at that point. But the guy has come to Christ and he's come alive and he's gotten on fire. And wow. he's actually now discipling me. Uh, you know, I, I discipled him for a while, and now he's discipling me. He goes away for month-long retreats, and he's just really, uh, he's now challenging me to grow. And, and it's just been beautiful to watch because he didn't have all these barriers. He wasn't, he, he didn't want to be judged, and, and, and he didn't want to be forced to be something he wasn't. But in the right kinds of conversations, he came to Christ, and man, has he taken off, and now he's challenged. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I love to hear that. You don't, you know, we need to hear that's what Billy Graham and his uh, uh, center, how we really outgrown the big tent and, and all these, uh, I think, I don't know, you know, um, I was watching something on, on PBS the other day about the moon, you know, the anniversary of, yeah, of right, around to the moon right. and how people banded around and they were excited about it and they talked about it. And then it just kind of vanished after that year that uh, Neil Armstrong and the, the other astronauts uh, made it to the moon. And why does that happen with evangelism where everyone's getting around, they're excited, and uh, the, the gospel's going out and something's happening in there, as they used to say? Yeah, I think, uh, I think every generation needs to understand the cultural code, the, how to crack the cultural code of the people they're trying to reach. And, and I think Billy Graham certainly did in his day. And then there was the Jesus People Movement, and they certainly did at that point. And, uh, and, and I think now uh, sometimes we need churches that really serve communities and stand for justice and preach the gospel. And it's a, it's a kind of a new approach. It's not the same, doesn't look the same because people are different, but it's the same gospel. Well, I like to bring it back. <laughs> Somehow, I don't think that really goes out of out of business. But uh, you know, well, I'm agree. I'm agreed with you, and I I think uh, we've actually seen it. I work. I've worked with a movement called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and we actually relaunched large scale, large meetings for preaching the gospel. Mm-hmm. And, 
and, and what we did, so understand this, what we did as part of how we connected to the campus as we stood for fighting sex slave trafficking and some of those other kinds of issues, but whenever we went on to campuses, what we said is, uh, although, you know, of course we want to fight those kinds of evils in society, but listen, there's a spiritual problem that runs deeper that we have to address, and only the gospel of Christ can address it. And we did large-scale meetings where lots of people came to Christ, and, and, and in a sense, there was a way to build trust with people so they would want to come to the large-scale meeting, but large-scale meetings can work like they have in the past. Yeah, I mean, they have all these. Uh, I don't even know the names of these uh, concerts. I, I, I bear. I pretend to when I go on YouTube or or Google. You know, Coachella or these events that people put on for in the music industry. I mean, they do that. They get around uh, something that uh, like minded with. Uh, so anyway, you mentioned unchurched views toward the Christian faith. Good for forty two percent. Good for society, they say. 17%, not for people like me. The church will fall down if I enter the church, as they probably think. Uh, 8%, right. not something I have explored. And only 6% said that uh, Christianity is harmful to society. Your thoughts? Yeah, I'm so glad you noticed that because those are real stats asking a representative sample of people across the country. And only 6% said that they think Christian faith and the church are harmful for society. Now that 6% can have a big megaphone. They, can, they might be writers and journalists and they might be on the media and they might, they might speak with a loud voice, but it's a small minority of people. And we need to understand that we've overblown the hostility toward faith. Now, you know, one of the challenges we face right now is that the, the country's polarizing around politics. And that's one of the problems we as evangelicals face right now is we're associated too much with partisan politics. Uh, and I don't, I'm not going to wade into all that. But what I, w what I will say is that, that I think if Jesus walked the earth today, he, he would be able to discern that there are some issues that Republicans would die for that Jesus Jesus would die for the faith, you know, the unborn and, and being pro-life. Certainly Jesus is for that. But there are also issues that Democrats tend to champion that Jesus would die for, like, like good news for the poor and, re, uh, you know, liberation for the prisoner and some of those kinds of justice issues. And then there are issues that Jesus would die for that nobody wants to have anything to do with. Issues like praying for your enemies and loving those who hurt you. And, and uh, so you look at that and you say, Jesus did, you know, he said political things, but he never played partisan politics because yeah. he cared too much about the gospel transforming lives. But yeah, it's true. You watch Fox News, the Christian channel, just kidding, yeah. just kidding. But uh, you know, I mean, but you see, you know, it's not just uh, the, we're brainwashed into thinking it's just that Christians are all Republican and that's it, and that uh, there's no goodly values. And for the Democrats, you mentioned that as well. That um, that's that's incorrect. But um, so you talk about missed opportunities in your book. You say, but for many Christians, false statistics, failed efforts, and a perceived lack of opportunity have led congregations into passivity and making friends and offering invitations. Yeah. So uh, could you talk about that? 
Yeah, I call it. I said, you know, we have a kind of a chicken little approach. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. All the millennials are leaving church. All the the culture is becoming a culture of nuns. The nuns are on the rise and now the biggest religious group in the country. And we kind of put all the bad news together and we start to despair. We start to become pessimistic and, and we catch what actually social psychologists call chicken little syndrome, uh, which is uh, the passivity and the panic that comes when we've actually believed a, a, a negative narrative that's been overblown. It's not that there are not negative things going on, but when we overblow the negative narrative and start to act as if it's the whole truth, we stop being witnesses. We stop building friendships. We stop uh, witnessing to Christ and we stop proclaiming the gospel. And as a result, then we wonder why people aren't coming to Christ at our churches and we wonder why we aren't reaching people. And there's a good reason we've caught chicken little syndrome. We've taken the, some of the bad news and made it the whole news. And the truth is that there's a lot of receptive people out there. If Jesus walked our streets, he would say, uh, you know, the harvest is still plentiful. There's still a lot of people out there to reach that are receptive. And, and we, if we could cat, capture that, capture that missional imagination um, and go out and crack the cultural code and connect with people, we would find many people in our culture who will come to Christ. And, and again, I've just seen this uh, in my life where I live. I've seen a lot of people that other people would say are unreceptive be very receptive, and, and a number of them have come to Christ. And we're with our special guest right now, Rick Richardson, Dr. Rick Richardson. He's the author of You Found Me, new research on how unchurched nuns, millennials, and irreligious are surprisingly open to Christian faith. We'll be right back. We're going to talk about strategies for belonging right after this. Sennheiser has been continuously setting trends in the audio industry. Wherever people care passionately about recording, transmitting, or playing sound, Sennheiser will be there. Artists, disc jockeys, scientists, sound technicians, or demanding music lovers, the Sennheiser name always stands for premium products, headphones, microphones, and all-around audio solutions. The ultimate in sound quality. Sennheiser. Okay, we're back right now with Dr. Rick Richardson. He's the director of the Billy Graham Center Institute and the Church Evangelism Initiative and professor of evangelism and leadership at Wheaton College Graduate School. He's done a lot of work, a lot of research went into the book, You Found Me. Uh, new research on how unchurched nuns, millennials, and irreligious are surprisingly open to Christian faith. It seems like, you know, uh, the Baptists are the first ones to the cafeteria that then <laughs> think it's all about uh, all about the church. It's not. It's all about the unchurched. It's all about reaching people for Christ. And so you mentioned that there are three strategies of belonging or for belonging, which I like. Number one, members of the congregation build relationships with people in the community and in the neighborhood. Before I get to that, you say, if we are to reach and disciple people today, we have to face how much of the conversation or the conversion process happens after people attend a church initially. And uh, I don't know, sometimes it seems a little strange. They're the first one to get the connect card filled and, and then you never hear from a church again. Yes. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's really true that, that these days uh, people are, are further away from Christ. It's a less biblically literate culture. People have less of a nominal Christian faith. The rise of the nuns is, is not actually 
um, you know, these people who are nothing in particular or atheist and agnostic, it's actually not an indication of the loss of committed Christians. That stayed fairly stable over the last several decades. What we're losing is the nominal Christian people, people who it used to be advantageous for them to say, oh, I'm Methodist or I'm Catholic or I'm Presbyterian or I'm, I'm whatever. And that used to be something that they wanted to identify with. And now people who used to be nominal say they're nothing in particular, and they're less connected to scripture. They're less connected to a kind of Christian background. So people have further to go. And so what we do is we kind of build relationships with them, we connect with them, we bless them, we begin the conversation, and then for them to really come all the way into a commitment to Christ, they get, need to get around a Christian community where they can belong before they believe. And that's what we're finding in our research is maybe half the conversion process happens while connected to the community, not just to individuals out there. Yes. And it's a very significant, uh, significant development in our culture in terms of how we reach people today. Yeah. And in the old days, then they have like uh, the save seats there where they had the, uh, the yarn, the crocheted uh, <laughs> blanket and pillow and Mabel sits over there. And, and wait a minute, we forgot about the people out there. It's all about, you know, and you have the book, You Found Me, uh, as far as the title. And it's true. Isn't it all about that? I mean, with Jesus... Yeah. We talk about him that, uh, you know, we say we came to Christ, but in, in, in essence, that Jesus found me. Jesus found me in a sinful, lost state. How did you come up with the title of that book? Well, my publisher first suggested it. We've had a lot of bad news books, uh, Lost and Found, or You Lost Me, or uh, Unchristian, you know, out there they think we're not. And those are good books. Uh, Barna books, uh, Greg Kinnaman is, uh, I mean, David Kinnaman is doing some wonderful work. And But what we wanted to say is, yeah, that's one side of the story. But the other side of the story is there's an awful lot of churches that are finding people who don't know Jesus and discovering receptivity and helping them come to Christ. And there's a lot of, you know, we, 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 look, we talk to 60 senior pastors of churches that are reaching people, and then we talk to 60 unchurched people, former nuns, former duns, you know, people who used to be in church uh -huh. and are no longer in church. We talked to millennials who had drifted away. We interviewed a lot of previously unchurched people, and every one of them would say, you found me. I mean, Jesus found them, but so did a friend. So did a coworker. Somebody else found them and built a relationship and blessed them and invited them into an experience of Christian community where they could belong before they believe. Yes. Dr. Richardson, it's hard to really know sometimes, I guess, what a church is up to. Sometimes it seems like it's a, a seeker-friendly church and they do everything they can to kind of not dumb down the gospel, but make it you know, palatable and so forth. And then there are other churches where it's line upon line and it's about, you know, book by book and, and, uh, are, do people lean too heavily on one side when it comes to you know their methodology for the church? Yeah, I mean, here's here's what our research was kind of found surprisingly is that uh, that actually small churches can reach people just as well as big churches. Uh, churches that do 
sort of uh, seeker type services can reach people, but so can line by line expositor type services. And the issue in churches is not whether you're a seeker church or not a seeker church or a large church or a small church. The key issue we found is whether you are a profoundly hospitable church for the unchurched. And hospitality in scripture is a lost art. Uh, in, in scripture, hospitality was not about welcoming your friends over to dinner so they could then welcome you to their house for dinner. It was actually about welcoming the stranger, the other, the poor, the yeah. lame, the blind. It was about welcoming people we don't tend to welcome. And unchurched are like that too. They, they don't share our values necessarily or our beliefs. And what we found is churches reaching people can preach the scripture line by line, but they know profoundly how to welcome folks and include folks and love folks well. Uh, who are unchurched. And so we actually called that uh, help people understand they are the beloved of God and respond to God. Churches that are reaching people did that. And not by some style, not by some strategy, not by some methodology, but a, by a profound practice of hospitality and loving people so that they knew they were beloved. How about that? Loving one another in the church. It's revolutionary. I think we, I think we should do that more often. And uh, the, <laughs> the book you found me, of course, endorsed by Luis Palau, who's a very well-known evangelist author. He says, Richardson, which is you, has blessed me personally with his care and concern for the lost, especially the younger generation. I'm glad he produced this book and pray it moves many to take a more active role in sharing their faith. And you mentioned in the book that uh, we need to get uh, the young generation, the millennials on board about all this, that it's not just, it's funny how churches go through these cycles where they could be all, you know, gray hair, blue hair, whatever, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, the little kitties, they'll go into the little, you know, I mean, uh, but you believe that we need to grow up the, uh, you know, the teenagers and they, they have a lot of work to do. Yeah, so you mentioned Luis Palau, and I love him. He's been a mentor, and, and uh, I, I know his, his board has told him, uh, has forbid him from endorsing any more books, and, you know, he's at a stage of life where he <laughs> needs to focus and not do that anymore. But, but he, you know, he had, I'd asked him, and he said, oh, well, you know, I don't care what the board says. You know, this is what we need. And he, he was like uh, uh, a wonderful example, once again, to me, of he just is committed to people who have come behind him and that he's mentored. He's very committed to a younger generation. One of the things he did in his festivals is uh, early on, he realized he needed to preach the gospel, but he also needed to serve the poor. And so his festivals did both. And, and when they did, when he started those festivals, he started reaching more people. So, so that's it. I, I, I think we've got to find the cultural code for that next generation. And we studied churches. We discovered some of that. And the younger people are coming to Christ. And it's wonderful to unpack how, how we keep them, how we disciple them, and how we reach them. Yeah, Luis Palau, of course, indebted to Billy Graham because it was like hearing that voice. It changed his life. And he became an evangelist and very close to uh, Dr. Billy Graham. And um, so, I mean, has this research changed you at all about your view? I mean, many years and again, serving as the director of the Billy Graham Center Institute and its church evangelism initiative. How has this book changed you at all? 
It, it has changed me. I, you know, I think for me, part of my move to the South Loop of Chicago to where there's a lot more nuns and a, a lot more diversity and all of that, I, I think part of as I, as I launched into the research of the book, I also wanted to be a missionary for God. I wanted to go move cross-culturally. So I'd been in Wheaton and I certainly had relationships there. But, uh, but then as I did the research, Michael, it was so fun because I'd find, I'd find out what churches were doing uh, to reach people that were diverse or that, that other people had written off. And, and then I would try those things. And I, I just, I loved it because uh, people responded that what those churches were doing, I found worked. And so that's kind of what led us to start doing pastor cohorts. We, we gather pastors together. We have helped pastors change the culture of their church, to, to turn it outward and to learn how to uh, break the cultural code of the nuns and the millennials and, and all the rest. And, and then how to really institute a missional engagement uh, so that they can become what we've called conversion communities, uh, communities that are just seeing a lot of changed lives, telling stories, at least 10% of their people are new commitments. Com newly committed to Christ, freshly redeemed people in the last year, that if they have 100 people, 10 of them came to Christ this last year and stuck and began to be uh, disciples. And Or if they have 1,000 people, 100 of them did. Or if they have 10,000 people, 1,000 of them did. And we've just seen conversion communities are within reach of everybody as we trust Jesus uh, and really reach people and capitalize on receptivity rather than shutting it down. I think you're in the right position. The way, what you're you're pretty you're pretty upbeat about all this. I mean, you're getting me excited. Other people too. That uh, we forget it. So it is about evangelism. And I want to ask you a question. I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer or anything. Billy Graham, being such a lightning rod for you know Christianity and the, the gospel, of course, is that once we lost him, I mean, and haven't gained him, uh, how difficult is it? to uh, maintain the interest for the, you know, Billy Graham Center? Uh, and, you know, how do you keep that going? Yeah, well, it was kind of interesting. The Billy Graham, uh, his funeral, they, uh, you know, and Franklin Graham and others, they really planned it, and Graham Lotz, they really planned it as uh, Billy, Billy's last crusade, uh, Billy's last major evangelistic outreach. And it was. There were many, many people who came to Christ. And, uh, and you know, in some ways, a younger generation heard about him that had uh, and that really didn't didn't really know who he was because in their lifetime, you know, you think about people that are 25 years old now, and and uh, Billy Graham's last crusade I think was in uh, 2005 or 2004, and 19, 1990s was the last time he was really really active. So a lot of those folks have never known his ministry, and uh, and when you ask students in our classes, uh, they don't know who he was. So so you're right uh, that that's a uh, that's been a factor, um, but uh, and you know at Wheaton College we're we're not it's not the same thing as as Franklin Graham. Uh, we we kind of have uh, we're both uh, you know Billy Graham started us and founded us both in terms of the Billy Graham Center um, and then the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. But we want to keep that memory alive. We think his values, his vision, his proclamation of the gospel are very significant. So we have a museum, and we continue to kind of talk about that legacy and want to carry it on.
Well, uh, I want to go. <laughs> I've never been there. I want to go with my wife. And forgive me for saying, I have two tickets to, what is it, the, the Holy Land uh, Amusement Park in Orlando. But that's not quite the same. I mean, that's a little different. I think, I think that, uh, you know, there's a lot more going on at the Billy Graham Center. I'd like to visit there with my wife and, and see everything. Uh, we will host you anytime. So, Dr. Richardson, I want to ask you, you know, we want to make church today uh, with revival and also the way it was you talk about the early church. Can you can can you compare the early church growth to what you refer to as the enduring conversion movement as far as how they're different and what you know, how are they alike? What exactly is the enduring conversion movement? Well, what, what's kind of fascinating is is when you study history, the key factor in whether the church grows and is vibrant and is reaching people is really not the resistance of the culture. We're, we're getting very concerned about the resistance of our culture, and I understand that. I'm concerned about what's happening in our culture, and I care about that a lot. But when you look at the early church or when you look at the church in China after, uh, after China closed, like, look at the church in China. They lost their institutions, they lost their buildings, they mostly lost the Bible, they lost all the missionaries, they lost all the Christian and theological schools, and communism was sweeping the country. So you had a very resistant culture, and you had an explosion of the church, like maybe hasn't happened since the early church exploded. Uh, the early church also faced a lot of resistance. They were put to death. Uh, because they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord, but but that Jesus, you know, they kept confessing that Jesus is Lord. There were lots of different paganisms running around, and that was the state religion, and it was a resistant culture, and yet the gospel exploded. And what you find as you look at history is that the key issue is not how resistant is the culture. The key issue is how vibrant is the church, how focused on the gospel, on passion for Jesus, how much integrity the church has to the kind of the moral and spiritual vision that's in scripture. And then are they able to translate the gospel and that vision into cultural terms people can understand? And when you have that, when you have those things going on, the gospel movement, the church does not slow down. It expands and it explodes. And that's the conversion movement. Mm -hmm throughout history, and we can see that today. The issue is not how resistant the culture is. It's not the nunning of the culture that our problem is, you know, everybody becoming nuns. It's the secularizing <laughs> of the church that's our problem. It's Sorry, and for people who just uh, joined us here, uh, Dr. Richardson, not talking about nuns, like the Catholic nun, but none who claim they don't subscribe to any religion or any association. Is that right? Yep, a better name is unaffiliated. They unaffiliated. Affiliate with, they do not affiliate with any organized religion. And uh, our problem is not that. It's not the loss of the culture. It's the loss of the vibrancy and passion for Jesus and proclamation of the gospel and cultural translation of the gospel into the culture. So that's I'm just so passionate about this because... Right. We could see renewal today. We can see revival today, and we can see an explosion and expansion of the gospel, like there's been in a lot of resistant cultures. If the church uh, is gets back to be in the church, yeah. And something you mentioned, I was going to say that uh, in a nice way, we have to bump some of the people off the boards. <laughs> the, reason, 
the reason right? I say that because you know you go on like ministry list or something like that, you know, and, and they show like maybe they're twelve people or you know we we don't understand what's going on with our church here. Nobody's coming, and those twelve people can't get along. They've all elected themselves on the board, and many times the the church just closes down instead of you know can we all just get along here, Rodney King, and uh, <laughs> but. Uh, it, it, when that happens, that frees it up. Um, yeah. Yeah. So this this would really help. I think that the you know the necessary information that's been done. How long did it take to put all that together? It was a about a three and a half uh, year labor of love uh, mm-hmm. to do the research, to work it through, and then to do some of the field testing in our pastor cohorts, so that what we can bring churches would really be valuable and could really work in the church. All right, last question, Dr. Richardson. It says here, it's right in your book, it says new research on how unchurched nuns, millennials, and irreligious are surprisingly open to Christian faith. So I do have to ask the big question, how are they surprisingly open? If you had to take this in a nutshell and uh, cuisinart it, uh, how are people surprisingly open today? People are surprisingly open to wanting to talk about spiritual issues and about Christian faith with people that will talk about, about those things non-judgmentally, that will talk about those things in an affirming, loving, trust-building way, like Billy Graham did with Woody Allen. You mentioned that, that interview. Love that. If, if we'll talk that way with unchurched nuns, millennials, and religious, irreligious today, they will be surprisingly open and many of them will come to Christ and many of them will come to our congregations. Our special guest has been Dr. Rick Richardson. He's the director of the Billy Graham Center Institute and it's Church Evangelism Initiative, professor of evangelism and leadership at Wheaton College Graduate School. Get the book. It's called You Found Me, How Research on How Unchurched Nuns, not nuns, the, uh, you know, but unaffiliated. Millennials and irreligious are surprisingly open to Christian faith. And thank you for being on the program. I loved it, Michael. You're very fun to be with. Our sponsors with over 90 years experience in developing audio electronics. Bayer Dynamics stands for innovative audio products with the highest sound quality and pioneering technology. Two business divisions, consumer and installation, provide tailor solutions for professional and private users. All products are developed in Germany and primarily manufactured by hand, from headphones to microphones and conference and interpretation systems. For more information, please visit north-america.bearedynamic.com. And by Vocal Booth To Go carries a complete line of products and accessories specifically designed for voiceover actors, audio professionals, podcasters, producers, and studio owners to help them get professional results for their clients. It's your go-to place for sound treatment, soundproofing, portable, and mobile vocal booths. Visit VocalBoothToGo.com for more information. And Oralex Acoustics has one mission, to make you sound your best. Thousands of satisfied Oralex customers have experienced improved acoustics, along with free expert advice, total sound control products from Oralex. Enjoy widespread use among prominent artists, producers, engineers, and corporations worldwide. Remember, it's not your gear, it's the room. Visit Oralex.com for more information. And great audio starts with great gear. And Zoom's 30-year reputation promises quality and affordability. Visit zoom-na.com today for recorders, audio interfaces, effects pedals, and more. We're Zoom, and we're for creators.